0: This is The Great Composers, an intimate look at some of history's most brilliant musical minds from CPR Classical and Colorado Public Radio.
1: If you really wanted to name Mozart's first true great masterpiece, I think this is it. We're listening to the Exultate Jubilate. Mozart was 17 when he wrote it. I really get the sense that all those years of travel and exposure and training and work that he did all paid off in this one great masterpiece.
0: Carla Walker from CPR Classical, and I'm with conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, and we are in Chapter 2 of Mozart's Life and Music in our Great Composers series. Scott, Mozart finally returned home to Salzburg after these several long trips that he took to Italy where he wrote a bunch of operas, and it should have been a triumphant return.
1: <laughs> yeah, it should have been, but Salzburg was a very different place when Mozart returned. You know, it was never a great musical center, but now it was getting even worse.
0: All right, so let's hold that thought just for a moment, and let's recap chapter one. We started with the story of Mozart's first composition at age four, when his genius was first revealed. Then we went through his extraordinary childhood, a life on the road, performing for Europe's royalty, learning from some of the great composers of the day.
1: Yeah, and we ended the first chapter with Mozart's 17 years old, and by the time he gets back to Salzburg at this point, he's gotten accustomed to rubbing shoulders with kings and princes, and he's already got eight operas under
0: his belt. And that brings us to the beginning of Chapter 2, The Lost Years. Scott, I'm overstating here (laughs) a little bit. Because Mozart was certainly productive after his return home to Salzburg and he wrote a lot of pieces, but it just wasn't where he needed to be.
1: Yeah, they are kind of lost in a certain sense that the opportunities that were available in Salzburg just didn't match his talent. You know, we've said Mozart had indescribable talent. He had the best training you could hope for, incredible discipline. But unless you've got the opportunity to write symphonies, to write concertos, You aren't going to develop the way you need to. Now that he returned home, they had a new archbishop, and this archbishop, Colorado, had the authority to do things like shorten the length of performances, shorten the length of masses. When people retired or left, he didn't replace performers. Qualities of the orchestra went dramatically down.
0: He also favored the Italian musicians, and he would pay them better than the native Austrians.
1: It's incredible, isn't it? You know, when you combine that with the fact that there's no theater, no opera company, it boils down to the fact that you've got one of the greatest talents on the planet, and he's basically only allowed to write serenades and church music.
0: And for most 17-year-olds, that would be just fine.
1: Absolutely. If if I were living in Salzburg at the time, and Scott O'Neill is 17 years old and the concertmaster of the orchestra and gets to write some church music, I'd be the happiest fella. But if you've got the gifts of Mozart... And you've worked as hard as he had he had a sense about himself he knew he did not belong here he knew that this was not the way he was meant to spend his God given talents
0: but by all accounts God he dove in he wrote a lot of masses during those years his late teens
1: absolutely he's very industrious wrote 11 masses at this time but if you think about it how many of those masses do we perform today Not very many. Yeah, it's very rare. At the same time, these masses really were important because they continued his development as a composer. For example, remember that first symphony, that second movement? There were those important four notes that he wanted to give to the horns. four-note idea, he uses the same four notes, but this time to create the credo from his Misa Brevis Kerschel 192. and so it appears here in his credo, and he's gonna use it at least one more time in his final symphony, those same four notes, when he writes the finale from Jupiter. But we'll explore that in a later chapter.
0: I'm Carla Walker, along with Scott O'Neill, as we try to answer the question of what makes Mozart a genius, a genius above others. We're at the point in Mozart's life where he's a young man who's toured all over Europe. He's back in Salzburg and working for the dreaded, practically tone-deaf archbishop. (laughs) But Scott, he makes the best of it. Yeah, I don't
1: think we can overstate just how productive he was despite the conditions he was living in. There's no opera. There's no theater. And let's face it, Mozart wrote in every musical genre that was popular during his day. But at his heart, he was an opera composer. And he was at his best when he was writing opera and writing these singable, very lyrical lines, even when he was writing instrumental music.
0: Give us an example, will you?
1: Yeah, the fifth violin concerto is great because it starts out perky, allegro, opening from the orchestra, and we expect the violin solo to follow suit. But before it does, it stops, it pauses, and he literally interjects a cadenza, which sounds like an aria to me. So to make our point about just how operatic this really sounds, I've invited my friend and soprano Amanda Balastrieri to sing this violin passage. Now Amanda has some first-hand experience telling the life of Mozart because she actually sang in the chorus and the soundtrack to the film Amadeus. Welcome Amanda. Hello. So Amanda will sing this violin passage and I've transposed it down to a lower key and uh, transcribed it for piano and we're going to do this instead of violin and orchestra voice and piano see what you think So that's actually part of the first movement of the violin concerto, but Amanda, singing it, tell me, how does it feel to sing a violin part?
0: Well, I grew up as a violinist, and um, my teacher always told me that these kinds of lines, of course, should be played as if they were being sung. I certainly think the same way about the way that you execute it, apart from the fact that you have to sing words. you're still thinking through the line the same way you're thinking of managing the vibrato and the volume and the phrasing and I think it has passion whether you play it on the violin or sing it.
1: I couldn't agree more and Mozart's music is filled with examples like this. Just listen to this moment from Mozart's fourth violin concerto. Isn't that gorgeous? I mean, I'm convinced that violin, in Mozart's mind, is a soprano.
0: What about the piano, Scott? This is how we knew the young Mozart. He was a keyboard player that would dazzle kings and queens all across Europe.
1: It's crazy, but for some inexplicable reason, he did not compose any piano music in Salzburg at the time. I can only imagine that not writing this music for Salzburg caused him to have all these ideas just pent up in him. Because when he went to Munich to write La Finta Giardiniera... An opera. Suddenly, we get six piano sonatas published. And
0: this is all in the course of about a month. He's writing his opera and these six piano sonatas. Yeah,
1: and of course, we all know when you're writing an opera, you got plenty of free time, right? <laughs> and one of these sonatas brings out an interesting point about Mozart that I don't think people today would suspect to be true. He wrote a piece in which he actually described himself playing it. Normally, we would think that you would play it straight, not fluctuating time.
0: Yeah, all the notes are on the beat there.
1: Right. They're very straight, right? The opposite of that is what we call rubato, which today is kind of been interpreted as meaning being very free you can move ahead you can let it drag you can speed up slow down be, you know it sound yeah I, I was a little gratuitous there with the rubato but uh just to make my point but what mozart says that he does is he says that the left hand goes on perfectly straight keeping even time, but then the right hand plays the melody over it in his own words as if it has no idea what the left is doing. So maybe it starts together, but then if the right hand starts that next passage a little bit late, but then it has to speed up to catch up because actually rubato, means robbed or stolen so the idea is you're stealing time so if you give a little here you got to take it there so the first part you'll hear three beats where they're together and then the right hand delays and then has to catch up see if you can hear that
0: so the right hand drags and then they come together there at the end
1: right so it, they're they're not always synchronized the right hand is free but the left hand stays steady
0: so each hand is moving to a different beat and and for <laughs> me this is like patting your head and rubbing your belly at the same time <laughs> absolutely
1: it's crazy right no one thinks that mozart would have played that way
0: how do you know for sure though
1: well We actually have a letter from Mozart to his father bragging about it, saying, the others don't understand how I can do this. To them, the left hand always has to follow the right.
0: Mozart seemed to have this never-ending well of inspiration. But even still, he was antsy during these years, working for the repressive and oppressive Archbishop in Salzburg, Not very satisfying for him. And perhaps this is something you can relate to. If you have ever had the experience of graduating high school or college and feeling this burning desire to strike out on your own, to go see the wider world, then you know exactly how Mozart felt. This is Mozart in Love.
1: Yep, his father's worst nightmare. So the Mozart family's escape plan was for Wolfgang to get a job in another city big enough that they could all follow him and they would all leave Salzburg behind. Their greatest fear, however, was that if he fell in love and got married, it could ruin that whole plan. So what happened as soon as Wolfgang left Salzburg? <laughs> exactly that. <laughs> he fell head over in heels with a singer, Aloysia Weber, and he wrote that aria we just heard for her.
0: Okay, so let's set the stage. Mozart is now 22 years old. His employer, the Archbishop of Salzburg, has just fired him for the sin of asking for some time off to go pursue his fortune elsewhere. In past times, his father would go with him. This time, however, his father, Leopold, has to stay back and work. So instead... Wolfgang's mother goes with him.
1: Yeah, you got to know that Wolfgang wanted to travel alone. I mean, he's 22. He's a grown man. Mm-hmm. But mom sent with him for a very specific reason. Keep tabs on him and make sure he doesn't fall in love. It's going to ruin their plan. <laughs> so when he gets to Mannheim, he really does his best to try to show how worldly and adaptable he is by writing in their style. First of all, the standard that was set at the time was one that valued poise and balance above all. Whereas this new style called Sturm und drang, literally storm and stress, was kind of like the melodramatic counterpart to that poise. So instead of the normal standard poise and balance of... Instead, we get... Mannheim had this really virtuosic orchestra, and one of the things that composers started to write for them that was kind of like their calling card was called the Monheim Rocket. Explain that. Yeah, so um, all it is is just a line that shoots up really fast. So like a rocket. <laughs> in, like a rocket, yeah, exactly. So in Mozart's case, it went... This part... That's the rocket, and so you put those together, and I'm convinced Mozart's really trying to make the case. Hey, I fit in Mannheim. Don't you wanna hire me? Listen to this, see if you, you agree. This is the first movement of his symphony number 25 in G minor, one of just two symphonies he wrote in a minor key. Here we are in storm and stress.
0: was fertile soil for Mozart. you
1: got to think, he would have been so happy there. They had a great orchestra. The elector loved him and appreciated his music.
0: But no job. Why no job?
1: Well, there was no vacancy. The elector even said, My dear Mozart, if only there were a vacancy. So, instead, his next plan is to take Aloysia to Italy and make her a prima donna.
0: And his father's (laughs) response was, he puts the hammer down. Oh,
1: did he. Leopold writes a series of bewildering letters um, accompanied here with the appropriate dramatic music. He said things like, Our future depends on your abundant good sense. I shall say nothing of women. For where they are concerned, the greatest reserve is necessary, nature herself being our enemy. And he even accused Mozart of saying, if you allow yourself to be trapped by the woman, this woman, you'll end in, quote, a labyrinth, a misfortune which most often ends in death. You banish all serious thoughts. You have long forgotten the Salzburg cross on which I am
2: still
0: hanging. The Salzburg Cross. Right. He is laying it on thick. (laughs) But this is an important moment in Mozart's life because Leopold is making it very clear in this letter that all of the training, the traveling that they've done, the significant investment that they have put into Wolfgang is a debt that they are expecting to be repaid.
1: Yeah, and the guilt tripping only increases. Uh, He later wrote, said... You understand and realize that our happiness and unhappiness, and what is more, my long life or my speedy death are in your hands. Whether captured by some woman, you die bedded on straw and an attic full of starving children, or whether you leave this world with your family well provided for and your name respected by all. You really must consider, first of all, the welfare of your parents, or else your soul will go to the devil.
0: And, Scott, that is mind-boggling to me. I mean, as a parent, we hope that our children will take care of us when we get older, but to explicitly say... To, To
1: threaten hell. Right! Yep. This was a big turning point in the relationship between Wolfgang and his father, and not in a good way, I'm afraid. But Wolfgang, being the dutiful son, leaves Mannheim with the orchestra and the city that he so loved, as well as Aloysia, the woman that he so loved, leaves them behind, heads off to Paris with his mother because his father said, get thee to Paris, and that soon.
0: That is the final movement to Mozart's piano sonata number no. eight, written in 1778 while Mozart is in Paris. I'm Carla Walker along with Scott O'Neill for our Great Composer series. We're in the middle of chapter two, and throughout this chapter, we've been talking about how Mozart is in search of the job that will allow him and his family to escape Salzburg. And he and his mother are in Paris, hoping that this is going to be uh, the place where he finds a job. But it was not to be.
1: Yeah. in Paris, I'm afraid Mozart's reputation actually worked against him. How so? As he put it, he said, what annoys me most of all here is that these stupid Frenchmen seem to think that I'm still seven years old. He didn't want to be that little performing monkey anymore he Mm -hmm. wanted to be known as a composer Mm -hmm. and he was willing to do whatever it took to acquiesce to French style so when he gets to France he changes the way he's writing but he never really gets convinced by it he never loves it the way he did the Mannheim style Ah. so even when he Tells his father all the things that he did. You can tell he's kind of ridiculing it at the same time. So when he wrote his Paris Symphony, number 31, he told his father, I made sure to include the first strike of the bow, and that's enough to please them. And behold, the symphony began. that opening string flourish? That is the premier coupe d'archet, or this, the first strike of the bow. And Mozart joked with his father, said, what a fuss the oxen here make of this trick.
2: Hey oxen.
1: Yeah, right, he's not a big fan of the French. Yeah, Devil take me if I can see any difference. They all begin together just as they do in other places. It's really too much of a joke.
0: So what he's saying here is that the French think this is a special French taste oh, yeah. in music to start the symphony. Everyone in together
1: a big way. And, and in unison, and he's like, yeah, they do that everywhere else. <laughs> Congratulations. So there are specific spots that he knew would appeal to taste from the music that he'd heard. And he wrote to his father, say, right in the middle of the first movement came a passage that I knew would please, and the entire audience was sent into raptures. That was great. And he uses uh, his pseudo-French term, (laughs) applaudissement. But as I knew when I wrote it what effect it would surely produce, I introduced the passage again at the close. (laughs) And sure enough, there they were, shouts.
0: From the top,
1: they literally wanted him to play it again.
0: So this is Mozart adapting to the musical style of where he is. But Mozart being Mozart, he's ridiculing it at the same time. Yeah,
1: And what I really love is when they get to the last movement, he really toys with the audience. So they all expect a loud start, right? Right. So he literally tells his dad, I started with only two violins. Very, very soft. And the audience
2: said, hush, hush.
1: so Mozart literally writes this beginning to try to make everyone in the audience say, and then surprises them with loud music.
0: So that's it. That's what the crowd was waiting for. And they went crazy, according to Mozart.
1: By all accounts, it was a huge success. It should have led to something better, right? Should
0: have, but no job offers again for Mozart in Paris. And then tragedy strikes.
1: Yeah, the absolute worst part of the trip to Paris. Um you know, when his mother left Mannheim, she had said, "I'm too old to travel, but I'm afraid to, to send him alone." So she knew she shouldn't be there.
0: She was 57?
1: Yeah. Okay. Um and at that time it was a it was a, a weathered 57, shall we say. And when she got there, you know, the the apartment that they had didn't have any sunlight. It, it faced the, you know, the north, and mm-hmm. it was cold, and she didn't have enough wood to buy. They, they, they were short on coal, so she was constantly cold. She didn't know anyone. She didn't speak the language. She was genuinely miserable there. And um, it wasn't too long that she actually caught a cold, and by the time the doctor was was brought, it was too late to think that this woman made these sacrifices for Wolfgang to try to help him on his career. Things weren't going well in Paris, and they, they didn't work out, but she spent her life on that cause. It wasn't long after that that he wrote this magnificent piece called the Sinfonia Concertante. And so often we hear people say that Mozart's life was separate from his music, that mm-hmm. that somehow he writes his happiest music in his darkest times. At the same time, I don't think that's really a clear way of seeing this. And when you hear the Sinfonia Concertante, already there's some pathos in there that is just heart-wrenching. But when you understand that this piece was written after the death of his mother who sacrificed her life for him, it is absolutely heartbreaking.
0: I think it's safe to say everything has changed now for Mozart.
1: Yeah, from the fact of what he's writing, the jobs he's trying to find or not trying to find. Because now without his mother to watch over him, his father says, get home. I don't want you living in, in Paris alone. And
0: and Mozart knows what awaits him in Yeah, Salzburg.
1: he knows his father well enough. You know, he...
0: His father is angry. He's blaming. He's going Wolfgang. to
1: blame Wolfgang for her death. You know, he tells you, you waited too long to bring the doctor. And Mozart already in the letters is, is saying things like "blameless as I am for this." And you know, it's 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 a real tragedy in their relationship because if you it wasn't that long ago that Mozart you know tells about uh, kissing his father on the nose. I mean, he did that until he was twelve, singing right. to him every night. But now... Now, uh, this, this really brings out the worst in Leopold. And this is the turning point. This is the continental divide on their relationship. And the other side turns so dark. It's so often people don't even know that Mozart's mother died uh, during his life. You don't hear anything about his mother. But this is really one of the central moments in his life. His mother's death changed everything.
0: And the downward spiral of his relationship with his father
1: starts now.
0: And we'll explore that next time on our Great Composers podcast. Head to CPR.org to find a Spotify playlist with the music in this episode and a timeline of Mozart's life. The great composers wrote some of the most powerful music ever. They were geniuses, but they were also humans with stories of struggle, heartache, and triumph. This podcast is about understanding their point of view to connect you more deeply with their incredible music. Each episode features stories, music, and insights illustrated on the piano in the CPR Performance Studio. And if you like this podcast, explore other podcasts from CPR Classical, The Beethoven Nine at Nine, a look at Beethoven's life through his nine symphonies, and Centennial Sounds featuring Colorado performances of music by 21st century composers. Find these at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The Great Composers was conceived and written by Scott O'Neill with assistance from me, Carla Walker. It was produced by John Pino and Martin Scavish with help from Richard Ray. Editing consultant, Cindy Carpian. Brad Turner is our digital editor with help from Leslie Smale. The executive producer is Monica Vischer. I'm Carla Walker.
1: I'm Scott O'Neill.
0: Thanks so much for listening.